Amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. And if you're using uh, one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 500. Page 500. So we're looking at Psalm 100 together this morning. Uh, We've been in a series on the Psalms, and we've been looking at the kingship Psalms in particular, uh, which span from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100. And so we come to the end of the kingship Psalms uh, this morning. And in some ways, uh, some people say this is kind of the pinnacle of the kingship Psalms here in Psalm 100. And it's a short Psalm, uh, but a powerful Psalm, and one that's had a tremendous amount of influence on Christian worship over the centuries. And so uh, let's turn now to Psalm 100, and I'll read for us uh, the Psalm in its entirety, and then we'll pray and consider. Uh, what God has to say to us from His Word. So Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered this morning to do just as this psalm has instructed us. To give You thanks and to bless Your name. Lord, we want to be a people that are characterized by the spirit of Psalm 100. So come now, Father, by your spirit and teach us, instruct us, lead us in your ways that we might be a people of thanksgiving and gratitude, of rejoicing and praise, that we might know you through the experience of gathered worship. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, thanksgiving or gratitude has experienced somewhat of a comeback in recent years, at least in the world of psychology and personal development. Uh, Periodically, I like to read a book or listen to a podcast on leadership or productivity. And in recent years, I have come across any number of authors and speakers and podcasters who are promoting the virtues of gratitude. And how gratitude can improve your health, your leadership, your relationships. Oftentimes these folks will suggest that you adopt something like a gratitude habit. Maybe you uh, start a gratitude journal in which each day you write down in your journal at least one thing that you're thankful for. And perhaps some of you do that now and that would be a good and helpful practice. A number of studies have seemed to show that people who consistently practice thanksgiving or gratitude get sick less, have healthier hearts, experience better sleep, reduce stress, have lower blood pressure, and overall experience better relationships. In fact, I've read a number of articles that indicate that practicing thanksgiving or gratitude seems to rewire the brain. You see, as a result of practicing gratitude, the brain produces more dopamine and serotonin, which are chemicals in our brains that are linked to positive emotions and a pleasing mood. 
And then as these chemicals are released in our brains, that produces more gratitude, which then produces more dopamine and serotonin. And you can see how this positive cycle can reproduce itself with intentionality. Well, there are many, many psalms in the Bible that speak about thanksgiving and gratitude. And Psalm 100 is at the top of the list. In fact, the title or superscription for the psalm reads, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. And although there are many psalms in the Bible that encourage thanksgiving, that encourage gratitude, none, no other psalm in the Bible has this explicit title, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. The title, of course, is specifically linked to what we read then in verse 4, where we read, enter his gates with thanksgiving. That word there, thanksgiving, is the same word in the title, give thanks, a psalm for giving thanks. And then it goes on to say, and his courts with praise, give thanks, that's the same word again, to him, bless his name. But there is a distinction that's to be made here between what we see kind of in our culture at large about gratitude and thanksgiving and what Psalm 100 is calling us to here. You see, Psalm 100 doesn't call us to just kind of a general sense of thanksgiving and a general sense of gratitude, but rather Psalm 100 rightly calls us to be thankful to God. And Psalm 100 doesn't call us to be thankful and full of gratitude simply for the personal and psychological benefits, although there are many. Rather, Psalm 100 calls us to be thankful and full of gratitude because God is worthy of thanksgiving and gratitude. And listen, my friends, Psalm 100 doesn't command us to start a gratitude journal, although that may be helpful in many ways. But rather, Psalm 100 advocates a uniquely satisfying and practical discipline for cultivating thanksgiving and gratitude in our lives, namely corporate worship. Corporate worship is the practice of gathering with God's people to give thanks and to express gratitude to the Lord, even as we're doing together right now in these moments this morning. You see, all the commands and all the imperatives that we find in Psalm 100 are in the second person plural. So the commands are not directed to an individual believer as much as these commands are directed to the people of God as a whole. What I mean by that is when we read these commands, and there are seven commands in Psalm 100, and as we read each of these commands, we shouldn't read them as you, like in Psalm 100 verse 4, you enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, thinking of an individual, but rather the sense is more like all y'all enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The entire psalm is speaking to the people of God as a whole. The entire psalm is assuming a context of gathered worship. On a personal note, I will say that I need to grow in thanksgiving and gratitude, but oh my friends, I can't imagine what an ogre I might be if it were not for the weekly practice of gathering with you Sunday after Sunday and hearing and remembering and singing and celebrating the goodness of God and His grace. I hope the same is true for you as well. 
Christian worship is a glorious and gracious means that God has given to us to awaken and nurture thanksgiving and gratitude in our hearts. So let's turn now to Psalm 100. And may we, like so many before us, be compelled by its message to give thanks to Him and bless His name. You'll notice that the psalm is laid out, it has a certain framework, and what we see is that there is a call to thanksgiving, and then there's a reason for thanksgiving, then there's another call to thanksgiving, and then finally a reason for thanksgiving. So that's the framework of the psalm. And based on that framework, I've constructed this outline, which we'll work through this morning. First, we'll consider come near and sing. Come near and sing in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll see He is God, Creator, and Redeemer in verse 3. Then come near and praise in verse 4. And then we'll see that He is good, loving, and faithful in verse 5. So first, come near and sing. This is a call to thanksgiving. Look there in verse 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Has someone ever done something really nice for you and you wonder, how can I express appreciation to them? How can I let them know that I am thankful? Should I send them a text or should I give them a phone call? Should I write them a card or give them a gift or maybe I should make a public recognition of their act of kindness. Now, if this is the case with one another, how much more is it the case with God? We might wonder at times, what can we do to honor Him? What can we do to express our appreciation? What can we do to thank Him for who He is and for what He has done? And here we see in the opening verses of Psalm 100, the psalmist tells us, he tells us some of the things we can do to express our thanksgiving to God. He tells us, in fact, that we can shout, we can serve, and we can come. Notice we can shout there in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now we encountered this same command in Psalm 98 verse 4. And I pointed out then that literally the way the text reads here, when, when in the English version we have make a joyful noise to the Lord, that make a joyful noise, that's actually one word in Hebrew. It's the word shout. And so literally the text can read, shout to the Lord, all the earth. And remember, these are kingship psalms. So if you could imagine a great king appearing before all the citizens of his land, and at his appearing, the citizens burst forth with, a great, with great shouts of pride and enthusiasm and joy. That's the sense here we have in Psalm 100. The king is appearing before his people. And with joy and enthusiasm and pride for their great king, they shout to the Lord. We can also serve. It's one of the ways we can express our thanksgiving to the Lord. Look there in Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Here we encounter the idea that when God's people gather together to worship God, we are actually engaging in an act of service to God. So in Exodus chapter 12, when Moses commands the people to gather once a year and to celebrate the Passover and to worship the Lord, 
Moses uses this language. Listen from Exodus chapter 12. He says, And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. The word there is avod. It means to serve. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. You see, it's based on this kind of language that we see in Exodus chapter 12 that some people have come to speak of Christian worship as a church service or a worship service. Have you ever heard that language before? The idea is our gathered worship is one of the ways that we serve God. When we pray, And when we sing, when we read and listen, when we celebrate baptism and take the Lord's Supper, when we respond to the preaching of God's Word with repentance and faith, it is an act of service to God. We are serving the Lord. And this is one of the ways that we can express our thanksgiving, our gratitude to Him. We can shout. We can serve. Notice also we can come. Look there in verse 2. Come into His presence with singing. Now the psalmist here is most likely referring to the people of God coming to Jerusalem, the holy city, to worship the Lord. But as Christians, we should be just as eager and we should be just as enthusiastic to come to church as the Israelites were to gather at the temple to worship the Lord. And here we see in verse 2, this is a glorious invitation that the psalmist is extending to us. Do you remember last week we were in Psalm 99? And the theme of Psalm 99 was that God is holy. It's repeated three times, right? He is holy, holy, holy. And what is the response to the holiness of God? The psalmist tells us, let the peoples tremble, let the earth quake. In other words, the response, the proper response to the holiness of God is reverential fear and awe. And then Psalm 99 concludes with this note of hope and nearness. The last verse of Psalm 99, it concludes, for holy is the Lord our God. Even though He's holy and transcendent and distinct, He is our God. And now, Psalm 100, transitioning from Psalm 99 into Psalm 100, now Psalm 100 invites us to come near to this holy God. Come into His presence. That's the invitation. Come into the presence of this holy God. And how are we to come into His presence? With weeping and gnashing of teeth? With self-hatred and self-loathing? No. Come into His presence with singing. With glad songs of praise. What a glorious and gracious invitation. And this command from the psalmist is directed to each of us and it is directed to all of us. In other words, in gathered worship, singing is not a spectator sport. We do not gather to watch someone else sing. We are all called to sing. We are all called to join in this joyful song to the Lord. Come into His presence with singing. So how do we honor God? How do we thank Him for who He is and for what He has done? 
the psalmist tells us we can shout and we can serve and we can come into His presence and sing. Of course, of course, all of this thanks and this gratitude that is to be directed towards God should be characterized by joy. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist uh, 19th century minister, has this to say, quote, The invitation to worship here given is not a melancholy one, as though adoration were a funeral solemnity but a cheery, gladsome exhortation, as though we were bidden to a marriage feast. Listen to this. Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with His nature, His acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for His mercies. End of quote. So this is the first call to thanksgiving. It is a call to come near and to sing. Now, let's consider secondly, He is God, Creator, and Redeemer. He is God, Creator, and Redeemer. We see this in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now, remember the, thanks, the, the, the framework. You have a call to thanksgiving and then a reason for thanksgiving. And here's the reason that the psalmist is giving us for thanksgiving. We see it here in verse 3. And notice the initial commandment. Know that the Lord, He is God. Now one of the things we need to point out here is that Christian worship is not unintelligible. It's not merely a mystical experience or a vague emotional connection with some undefined spiritual divine something or other. Rather, Christian worship is grounded in the knowledge of God. Or we could say it this way. Christian worship is the overflow of the knowledge of God. It's as we come to know God for who He is that we are then compelled to worship Him. So Christian worship begins with knowledge, with knowledge of God. Know that the Lord, He is God. And how do we know Him? How do we know who He is? Because He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. He's chosen to make Himself known to us in and through His Word. This is why the Bible, the Word of God, must be central in Christian worship. True Christian worship begins with the knowledge of God, and this means that true Christian worship begins with God's Word. It's as we understand His Word that we come to know Him for who He is, and we are taught to worship Him as He intends to be worshipped. Now, what is it that we are to know about this God? What is it that we are to know about the God of the Bible that provokes us and inspires us to thanksgiving? We'll look there in the text and listen to the psalmist. He says, we are to know that He is God, we are to know that He is our Creator, and we are to know that He is our Redeemer. Notice, we're to know that He is God. He says there in verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, I've pointed this out a number of times, but you see there, LORD is in all caps. And that's because in our English translations, when you come across LORD in all caps, that represents the personal or covenantal name of the God of Israel. In Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh, or some people might pronounce it Jehovah. So when we speak of the God of Israel, 
When we speak of the God of the Bible, God is not His personal name. Yahweh or Jehovah is His name. Like there are other gods like Baal or Molech or any number of other supposed gods in the world. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is Yahweh. And Yahweh, the God of the Israel, the God of the Bible, the psalmist says here, is God. He is God in distinction from all the other gods. All the many gods who claim to be God. But only Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is truly God. One commentator has written on this point, quote, To praise is to reject alternative loyalties and false definitions of reality. Praise is relentlessly polemical, end of quote. What he means there is that in Christian worship, Christian praise is always both implicitly and explicitly making distinctions, offering a defense, making bold declarations that the God of the Bible is uniquely God, that He is the one true and living God. So when we confess or when we sing, you alone are God, we are affirming the unique and exclusive claims of the God of the Bible. And we are repudiating and rejecting all other gods and their claims to deity. We must know that the Lord, the God of the Bible, He Himself is God, the one true and living God. We, almost know, we also must know that He is our Creator. You see it there in the text, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. You know, some claim to be self-made men, and it has been said that self-made men tend to worship their Creator, namely themselves. This is one of the tragic consequences of naturalistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution is an attempt to write God out of the script, to claim that we are nothing more than the product of random evolutionary and biological processes. And if God did not make us, then why should we thank Him? If God did not create us, then what do we owe Him? But the glories and the complexities and the beauties of this universe, and especially of the human species, leads us to the conclusion that it takes far more faith to believe that we are the product of random chance than it does to believe that we are the exquisite masterwork of a divine creator. It is He who made us. And because He made us, we owe Him our thanks and our praise. We are to know that He is God. We are to know that He is our Creator. We are to know that He is our Redeemer. You see there, the psalmist goes on to say, we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Here the psalmist uses the language of a shepherd. And here he reminds us of perhaps the most well-known psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, the instruments of a shepherd, 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is our shepherd, and we are the sheep of His pasture. And it is no mistake, it's no mere coincidence, that then centuries later, the Lord Jesus would come on the scene, and He would declare, I am the good shepherd. It's a remarkable and bold claim. Jesus is equating himself with the Lord in Psalm 23. Jesus is saying, I am your shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And what does the shepherd do for his sheep? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As Isaiah the prophet declared, all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we were strays. We were outcasts. We were cut off from the flock and the fold. We were in danger of fierce wolves and death and hell. But at the cross, Jesus, our good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. As Isaiah would go on to declare, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Lord Jesus died the death we deserve so that through faith in Him, by His atoning sacrifice, we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can be returned to the fold of the loving and under the loving care and protection of the Good Shepherd. In this way, He is our Redeemer. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And so the psalmist declares here that He is God. He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. And for all these reasons, we should give Him thanks and we should give Him praise. We should come into His presence with singing. Notice next, third, come near and praise. So we've considered come near and sing. He is God, Creator, and Redeemer. And then our third point is come near and praise. Look there in verse 4. We read these words. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So again, we're following this framework, right? There's a call to thanks. And then there's a reason for thanks and a call to thanks. That's where we are now. There's a second call to thanks. And then there'll be a reason for thanksgiving to follow. But notice the gates and the courts here that the psalmist speaks of most likely refer to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had several gates through which you could enter into the temple. And then the temple also had an outer court and an inner court. And here the psalmist issues an invitation, which is more like a command. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now notice again here in Psalm 100, the psalmist is is inviting us to come near, to draw near. In verse 2 he said, come into his presence. Now in verse 4, enter his gates and his courts. And how are we to enter his presence? In verse 2 he says, with singing, with glad songs of praise. And now in verse 4, with thanksgiving, we are to give thanks to him and to bless his name. Now just just imagine for a moment here what the psalmist, the the vision that the psalmist has, the, the image that he has in his own mind as he writes this psalm, and what it would look like being played out. 
Can you imagine a joyful throng of worshipers traveling from near and far, gathering in the city of Jerusalem, flowing into the gates of the temple with enthusiasm, with joy, with thankful hearts, filling the courts of the temple with a sense of anticipation and eagerness and gladness because they have come to worship God and to give give Him thanks. It shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine because this should be the disposition of our hearts when we gather for worship at Crawford Avenue on Sunday mornings. God is, through Psalm 100, calling us. He is inviting us. He is commanding us, come, enter, draw near, give thanks. And this should be our general disposition when we gather together on Sunday mornings for worship, even in spite of all our various trials and sorrows and difficulties, which I am sure there are many. We should come with a sense of joy, with a sense of eagerness, with a sense of anticipation. We can be sure that these folks here in Psalm 100 who are being addressed in the original context, we can be sure that they had bills to pay, they had kids, they had trials, and the psalmist is declaring to them, come, enter, draw near, give thanks. It's a reminder to us of how important it is and what a privilege it is to prioritize gathered worship. To make it a point to be present when God's people gather together Sunday after Sunday to worship the Lord. Of course, many of you know that church attendance in our own country is on the decline. But it's not just that some folks have decided that they don't believe in God or they've rejected Christianity or they don't need God in their lives. It's that some of the most faithful and devout have determined that church attendance is just not all that important. Kevin DeYoung, who's a Christian minister in the Charlotte area, wrote an article on this topic for the Gospel Coalition a number of years ago. The article is entitled, The Scandal of the Semi-Churched. If you get the chance, you should check it out. The Scandal of the Semi-Churched. In this article, DeYoung writes, quote, I want to talk about church members who attend their home church with great irregularity. These aren't unchurched folks or de-churched or under-churched. They are semi-churched. They show up some of the time, but not every week. They are on again, off again, in and out, here on Sunday and gone for two. That's the scandal of the semi-churched, end of quote. In fact, one... Christian statistician who kind of tracks these things, he argues that, quote, the number one reason for the decline in church attendance is that church members don't go to church as often as they used to. Now listen to that. That is amazing. We hear a lot about decline of church in the U.S., church attendance. But this one one man makes this observation, quote, the number one reason for the decline in church attendance is that church members don't go to church as often as they used to. And I promise you, my friends, we are not the stronger for it. And our churches are not the better for it. As Christians, we need to hear afresh the cry of the psalmist, the command of the Lord, come, enter, draw near, 
and give thanks. He's calling us. He's inviting us. He's, in fact, commanding us for our good and for His glory. Very practically, let me encourage you to make Christian worship a priority in your life and in your family. Settle it. Nail it down. If you're single, determine, this is who I am. This is what I do. When the church gathers on Sunday to worship the Lord, I will be there. If you're a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, settle it. Nail it down. This is who we are as a family. When the church gathers on Sunday, we will worship the Lord. At Crawford, may our devotion to Christ and our love for the Lord be expressed at least in part by our enthusiastic, joyful, and faithful commitment to gather Sunday after Sunday, to come, to enter, to draw near, to give thanks. Fourth and finally, He is good, loving, and faithful. He is good, loving, and faithful. We see this in verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. So here we're following the framework again, right? A call to thanksgiving, a reason for thanksgiving, a call to thanksgiving, and here's the final reason for thanksgiving. And this final reason is found in verse 5, and really it's three reasons. The Lord is good, the Lord is loving, the Lord is faithful, and therefore we should give Him thanks. Notice he's good, for the Lord Yahweh is good. I mentioned this last week, and we were looking at Psalm 99, that this was not true. We shouldn't take this for granted, because this was not true of the pagan gods of the Old Testament, or even the Greek and Roman gods of the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon points out, quote, The gods of the heathen were, according to their own votaries, that's their devoted followers, lustful, cruel, and brutish. Their only claim to reverence lay in their supposed potency over human destinies. Who would not far rather adore Jehovah, whose character is unsullied purity, unswerving justice, unbending truth, unbounded love, and a word, perfect holiness, end of quote. In fact, Jesus declares, speaking of the God of the Bible, Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God is good even to His enemies. James Boyce writes, quote, The God of the Bible is and always has been good. When He created the world, all that is in it, He saw that it was good. Genesis 1. When He gave us His law, that His law was good. Romans 7, verse 12. When He reveals His will to us, His will is good, perfect, and pleasing. Romans 12, verse 2. The word gospel means good news. The very word God is a shortened form of the word good. No wonder the psalmist cried out, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 34, verse 8. End of quote. The Lord is good, and therefore we should give Him thanks. Notice also, though, that the Lord is loving. You see it there in verse 5. His steadfast love endures forever. This is the word hesed. It's what's translated here as steadfast love. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, that God is love. And of course, the... <clears throat> Excuse me, the greatest display of God's love for us 
was demonstrated in Christ's redemptive work at the cross. So that John records in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And this love, as the psalmist declares here, endures forever. This is the truth that Paul celebrates in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, when he declares, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. And then notice, not only is He good, not only is He loving, but He's also faithful. Psalm 105, His faithfulness to all generations. The sense is is His faithfulness endures to all generations. Charles Spurgeon writes, No fickle being is He, promising and forgetting. A changeable God would be a terror to the righteous. They would have no sure anchorage, and amid a changing world, they would be driven to and fro in perpetual fear of shipwreck. Our hearts leap for joy as we bow before one who has never broken his word or changed his promise. End of quote. His faithfulness endures to all generations. For all these reasons, we should give him thanks because he is good, because he is loving. Because he is faithful. Psalm 100 calls us to thanksgiving and gratitude. And for this reason, Psalm 100 has inspired several great Christian hymns, particularly in the Protestant and in the Reformed tradition. If you grew up in a Protestant church, at some time you may have sung William Keats' hymn entitled, All People That on Earth Do Dwell. And it's a hymn that is a reflection on Psalm 100. Let me read the words of this hymn to you and just listen for the spirit of Psalm 100. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, His praise foretell. Come ye before Him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our aid, He did us make. We are His flock, He doth us feed. And for His sheep, He doth us take. O enter then His gates with praise. Approach with joy His courts unto. Praise, laud, and bless His name always, for it is seemly so to do. Because the Lord our God is good, His mercy is forever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Him Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In fact, for some time, this hymn was so well known and loved in Protestant and Reformed circles that Charles Spurgeon claimed, quote, let us sing the old hundredth. That's a reference to Psalm 100 and this hymn. Let us sing the old hundredth. 
is one of the everyday expressions of the Christian church and will be so while men exist whose hearts are loyal to the great king. Nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. End of quote. Of course, the last verse that I read there came to be known as the doxology in many English-speaking Protestant churches. There are many doxologies in the Bible. A doxology is simply a declaration of praise and worship to God. But this doxology was so common in English-speaking Protestant churches that it came to be known as the doxology. If you grew up in a Christian church, you might have had a pastor or a music minister say, we're going to sing the doxology, and everybody knew what that was, right? Praise God. From whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, my friends, whether we sing the exact words of all people that on earth do dwell, or the doxology, or one of the many great hymns or songs that we sing here at Crawford Avenue, may the spirit of the old hundredth capture our hearts. The spirit of Psalm 100. And may this especially be evidenced in our joyful eagerness and commitment to gather Sunday after Sunday and to enter into the Lord's presence as the people of God to draw near to Him and to give Him thanks. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You this morning and we worship You because You are God. Because you are our creator, you have made us. And because you are our shepherd redeemer, you have redeemed us and gathered us together as your flock and your fold. We do gather this morning together and give you thanks because you are good far beyond our comprehension. And your steadfast love endures forever. And your faithfulness to all generations. Lord, may we as a people be marked by an eager enthusiasm to gather and to worship. And as we do so, we pray that you would meet us Sunday after Sunday, that you would be worshiped and you would be praised and we would be changed and transformed. Father, thank you for the gift of Christian worship. Thank you for the joy of meeting with you week after week. And we are so thankful that even in times where we feel like maybe it's not doing anything, that when we look back over weeks, months, years, we can see how you have used our gatherings, how you have used our times of worship and praise to change us, to conform us into the image of your Son, to sustain and strengthen us, to, pers- to cause us to persevere and, and to uh, be preserved through trials and difficulties and hardships and sorrows. Lord, continue to do this great work as we praise your name. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it.